If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them open to the book of Matthew once again. We are going to be in actually Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, so you can applaud and pat yourself on the back that we made it through two whole chapters of Matthew in six months. So um, we're continuing. Some of you are like, oh my goodness, really? We're going to be in here for like 10 years. Could be, huh? So, but this morning we continue on the Sermon on the Mount, this series called Disciple, in walking through uh, the teachings that Jesus gives us of what it means to follow him. And so this morning we're looking at these first six verses that Jesus tackles an issue that because of his great wisdom and the sovereignty as being God understood that 2,000 years ago when he talked about being judgmental, he wasn't just talking to a group of people gathered on a hillside that that's all it applied to. He knew he would be talking to his church 2,000 years ago that would still be struggling in this area of being the judge of other people. And so this morning we're going to look at what Jesus has to say, which is again challenging to us, challenging to the way that we think, the way that we live our lives. And especially in this area, also in the church, but even in our culture, you and I, we enjoy and we thrive on being the judge or the critic of other people. In fact, it's, so, it's something that's so a part of who we are, it's extremely popular. On, on television right now, if, if, if you're watching any kind of a, a program that somebody sings or dances or does some kind of unique talent, that show comes with a panel of judges. American Idol, The Voice, America's Got Talent. I mean, you just go all, down the list. All of these have what? Judges. And so really, you know, you, you want to see the talent, but the judges are kind of the celebrities. They're the kind of the ones like everyone wants to like, okay, who's going to be, who's going to be the judges this year on American Idol? Who's going to, who's going to replace uh, Christina Aguilera on the, on the voice? And, and that's the question. It's the judges. They all come out and everyone's like, wow, this is amazing. And if, if you're like my family, what happens when you're watching a show like that is that you become the judge yourself. You know what I'm talking about? So, you, you know, you see the panel up there, and they're going to give their imp- opinions. But, like, we're our family, we love The Voice. So we're watching The Voice, and, you know, I, I can't sing worth nothing. But, man, I could be a critic of somebody who can sing, right? So someone's singing, I can hear a flat note, and I know it's flat. And I'm like, ooh, I look at Jordan. He's like, oh, yeah, I'd mark him down on that one, too. And you're like, suddenly you're the judge, right? You're the panel. And we like that. We do it, in, and we, would, we do it on television shows. We do it in sports. This is what's crazy. Years ago, there used to just be sports reporters, now we have sports analysts. Anybody watch ESPN? So you watch any kind of sports today. What do you have? You have one reporter and you have four analysts. That's what you have. So you have one guy who talks, or one lady who talks about what's happening in the game, and then you have three or four others that tell you the opinion of what they think is happening in the game. You see, watching a lot of college basketball lately, and so you have everybody picking who's going to win and why they're going to win or why they're going to lose. And it has to do with what? Being a critic or being a judge and passing judgment on the talent level of a player or the ability of a coach. And we love it. We tune into that. People watch hours and hours and hours of ESPN to hear some guy say something about some player. And he'll hang on that. And then if it's not enough to watch on TV, it's politics. Politics is based on critique and judgment. So we form our groups or our camps, and we end up on one side, and we lob bombs at the other side, and we judge and how we're right and they're wrong, and, and it's all what? It's all about critique. It's the culture we live in. The tragedy is then we come to church, and we take what we live in, and we apply it to the church. So we start critiquing each other. We start pointing out all the flaws in everybody else. We start critiquing other churches, other pastors, other ministries, and we try, try to play this comparison game. And so it becomes a part of the culture that we're in. So what happens when critique becomes the core of what we are, then we end up being divided. We're separated. 
we're not fun- functioning together. We're not united. We're not moving forward in what God has for us. Why? Because we're too busy being the judge of everybody else and never really come to grips with the brokenness in our own life, which we'll talk about this morning. So if you have your Bibles, let me read these six verses and then we'll walk through them together. So once again, in Jesus' words, Jesus says, Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred and do not throw pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their, their feet and turn and tear you to pieces." Very uplifting and encouraging for you and I this morning. So starting at the beginning, we'll go through things that Jesus uses. He says, do not judge. What is Jesus saying when he says judge? The word judge specifically had to do with separating or determining so that a choice has to be made between one or the other, right or wrong, good or bad. So this ability to judge is separating things and then passing a judgment or a verdict or a choice on a decision on one other or the other. That's what he's talking about. It had to do with this kind of evaluation of somebody else and really at its core had to do with the evaluation of somebody else's motives. So having the ability to judge somebody's not just outward appearance or outward behavior, but the, actually the motivation within them. Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't be that kind of judge. So with that understanding, what he gives us is a really very... The first couple of verses are really important to understand. Because sometimes we think that, you know, yeah, you know, I'm not perfect in that area. And, you know, I, I fail in that area. But it's really not that big of a deal. Sometimes we, we reference that when it comes to sin. This is one of those areas. We, this is a, a, a sin that's tolerable in the church. That we critique each other. But Jesus comes in the first couple of verses. And he tells us there is a cost to living the life of a critic. There's a cost to criticism in our life. So look at the first thing. Look at the verse 1. Jesus tells us that the first cost of criticism is that you actually create your own culture of criticism around you. He says, do not judge or you too will be judged. When you and I choose to be the critic of everybody else around us, you and I create this cycle and create this culture around us of being judgmental. It's a part, it becomes a part of the rhythm of life. It becomes a part of our conversation. It even becomes a part of who we are. It's a cycle. I pass judgment and I'm judged. It's all a part of this. Now, we don't like the second part. We like the first part. We like to, to judge other people. We don't want anybody to judge us. And see, when it becomes so normal and it becomes acceptable and it becomes a part of the rhythm of who we are, it ends up happening everywhere in our life. Everybody ends up forming groups or camps or a word that we don't like to use is cliques. Based on people who agree with our assessment, our judgment, our division and separation and determination of what's right and wrong. So we get camps of people around us who agree like us. So it happens at school, happens at work, and it happens at the church. In the church, it happens all the time. We, we get people around us and we create these groups and we get these cliques of what we think. And then we begin to critique the other group and the other clique because everybody in that group will agree with us. And so what, that, what happens is that a church or school or work or wherever or a team is not, no longer united. We're divided. We're divided amongst our cliques. Why? Because we've decided to be the critic. We've decided to be the judge. So we've created this culture of criticism. 
that's around us. And the cost of that in our life is that we're completely isolated and separated from each other. And we can't move forward. Why? Because we found ourselves in these little cliques. And God says that's, that's not what we're supposed to do. That's not what our lives are supposed to be about. You know the beautiful thing about being here? It's what, a year and a month now that, that we've been here. Is watching over that time, and this is credit to the Holy Spirit's work in our church, that I've watched either you're doing a really good job of hiding it from me or something legitimate is happening. That we used to be a church of camps and cliques. We are becoming less and less of that. I've seen less camps, less cliques, less gossip, more unity, more transparency amongst people and conversations. And it's exciting. The Holy Spirit is doing something very healthy among us. It's not easy. It's difficult. It's painful sometimes. But it's really good because it's bringing us together ultimately for God's mission and God's purpose. Second thing, look at verse 2. So we create our culture of criticism. But the second thing is you and I also have to understand the cost of criticism means that you create your own standard for criticism. Because Jesus goes on, he says, For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. So the standard that you create of what it means to judge somebody else, that's the very standard that will be used to judge you. We don't like that. We would like our standard to be really low and the other standards to be really high. I can judge them according to this. And so we create this kind of standard for the way that we judge other people. Now, if most of us don't think this way, but this is what's true. Our standard for judging other people is perfection. Now, most of us, we will, you hear yourself say this phrase, well, I don't expect them to be perfect. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. We expect people to be perfect in all the areas that we want them to be perfect in. So our standard is perfection. It's like the idiot that cuts you off on the freeway. Your standard is, don't cut me off because you're an idiot, idiot drive better. Not understanding maybe, maybe there's something going on inside that vehicle that is more serious to them than just the fact that they were rude to you. Maybe they just lost a loved one. Maybe, they, maybe something's going on and they're depressed in their life. Maybe they're not aware of what's going on around them. Maybe there's more than just the fact that they just cut you off because they really made it a point to make your morning horrible morning, which is not true, but we sometimes think it that way. But beyond, beyond driving, just think about the expectation that we have, the standard that we have for other people is perfection. See, we're fine when we're the ones that are judging. We're not so good when someone's judging us because we don't want to be held to the same standard. See, when we, when we judge that way, guess what? We will be judged that way. Not only by God, but in the way people approach us. When I came out of Bible college, <clears throat> I had lots of knowledge from books Lots of pride and zero experience. That's a very dangerous combination. Because when I came out of Bible college, I was convinced that I knew what ministry was about. I understood what pastoring is about. And, uh, and so because of that, I had a high standard for anybody who was in leadership over me or with me of what pastors are supposed to be. And so I was brutal. I mean, I, I would have conversations. I would say things about other leaders, about other churches, because I had all the wisdom in the world, but zero experience to prove it in my life. So I was very arrogant and prideful. In fact, I remember to this day, I, I remember having conversations. Dennis Easter, who is our district supervisor, who's an amazing leader, uh, when he first brought me on staff at Horizon Foursquare Church out, out in Ventura, I remember sitting down like within the first couple weeks and critiquing him on the way he would preach. Are you kidding me? At that point, I think Dennis had like 15 or 20 years of ministry experience. He was a very accomplished leader. And in my arrogance, I thought somehow I knew more than Dennis Easter. And so that was kind of my MO. And I remember the first time, this is even before Horizon, the first time that I ever, ever preached like in a real service. Because, you know, when you're in Bible college, they stick you in a classroom and you preach to your fellow students. It really doesn't work well. It's not real. 
that when you're standing in front of a church, a group of people who are listening to you or falling asleep, like some of you might be doing right now, that it's a different dynamic. So I get there and I prepared. I've spent hours and hours on my message. I work really hard. I think it's like the best message ever. So I, I preach this Sunday morning and I walk away feeling really good about what I've just done. Like, man, I just hit it out of the park. Everyone's going to like flock to come to know Jesus. You know, I can go start a church right now and have thousands. You know, those are things going through your mind. You're a little delusional. And then about a week or two late, later, the senior pastor of that church calls me into his office. And I'm thinking, he wants to talk about the message. And he's probably going to tell me what a great job I did. And, you know, so I get in there and, and he, it's him, his associate pastor, his youth pastor, and then my best friend who we were, we were in Bible college together. And I thought, wow, he's brought everybody out to kind of sing my praises, which was exactly the opposite. For the next hour, he just completely disassembled me. I mean, just took me apart. And just went after how I handled the passage I was preaching from, the delivery, my illustrations, information I shared. And by the end of it, I was so upset and hurt and angry that at the time I couldn't see what he was saying was absolutely true. Because what he was doing was the very thing that I had done to all the other leaders. He had set the bar of perfection and said, this is what you're shooting for and this is where you landed. And man, I didn't want to hear that. But I'm convinced that one of the reasons God allowed that to happen in my life is because I was doing what Jesus said not to do. I was judging other people. And therefore, Jesus said, okay, if you're going to judge according to perfection, then you will be judged by perfection. I don't like that. I'd rather stop on the, on the front end and not judge than end up in somebody's office having somebody completely destroy you because you were wrong. Now, the way he did it could have been done better, but what he had to say was actually right on. And then the, the third thing of the cost of criticism is in the second part of verse 2, is that you and I ended up, end up creating our own punishment for criticism. So we have the measure of how we judge somebody, and then we measure out that judgment. And that's what Jesus says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So the cost that you're going to assess to that person, it's going to be measured to you. Obviously, there is only one judge, and we know that. And that judge is God. He's the ultimate judge, and he's the one that presides over our lives, and he's the one that is just and right and fair, and he's the one that will judge all, all people for all time uh, someday, and we will be accountable to him. But sometimes it's hard for you and I to understand that because we somehow take on that we are the judge, and we begin to measure out the judgment for people and what that's going to mean for them. And so we become God. We take the role of God sometimes and in our judgment towards other people, which is only reserved for God. But you and I have to understand, and we'll talk about it in a moment, there is a place for correction. There is a place to help people along. We'll talk about that because Jesus mentions that. But when it comes to passing judgment on other people, we have to be really careful. And the reason why is that all of us are flawed all of us are imperfect. Not one of us is perfect. And when we step into that place of somehow thinking that we are God, we don't think, oh, I am God, but we think that we are, we are the judge. We have to be careful. We have to be really careful because the only reason that you and I have the ability to have a relationship with God, to know Jesus, is because what we just did a few moments ago in this thing called communion. Because of what Jesus did for you and I. See, we deserved what? The punishment. It should have been measured out to us. The wrath of God being poured out on us. Because God is fair and God is just. And when failure happens, payment has to come. Punishment has to come. But Jesus, because of his love and compassion for humanity, gave his life on the cross to provide a covering and a shield that took on the wrath of God on the cross to pay for our sin. 
So you and I have to understand in our brokenness and our failure, there is this covering of Jesus' grace, the blood of Jesus that covers us, that protects us from the judgment we deserve. When we have that in mind, how in the world can you and I think for a moment that we have the right to step out from underneath that covering and become the judge? We can't. Because that measure is too high for us to take on our own. Jesus had to cover it for us. But the good side of that is because of that, in our brokenness and our failure, through our confession and repentance and following Jesus, we can be right before God. We can survive the wrath and judgment of God. Why? Because of what Jesus did for you and I. See, we don't want it measured out to us, so we can't measure it out to other people. The ultimate person or ultimate one who's going to punish people or who is going to exact judgment is God, and he's going to do a much better job than you and I ever will. Isn't that nice to know that you don't have to be God? It's a relief to me because I don't do a very good job of it. None of us do. But there's a couple of things before we jump to how, how we, how the, what's the proper context for helping people along and correcting them is what is underneath the surface when it comes to criticism? What drives us? What motivates us? What causes that kind of lifestyle to become part of who we are? There's two things that Jesus highlights for us in verse 3. The first cause of criticism is this ugly thing called pride. Because Jesus goes on and he says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention in the, to the plank in your own eye? Jesus is being ridiculous. He's talking about having somehow the ability to see past the piece of lumber protruding from your eye to see the little tiny speck that you can barely see in, the, in somebody else's eye. The only way that you and I can have that kind of perspective is that if we're absolutely blind to the reality of who we are. It's pride. Pride has this ability to put a coating over us that insulates us from what's true about ourselves. It hides, we hide from ourselves behind pride. And so we're blind to what's really going on. So, so we don't really see the plank because we're living in this false reality of pride that tries to project something about who we are that's not true. And so we're blinded to that. And because of that, we become very proficient at judging other people because our pride has told us we're okay. We don't have a plank in our eye. They have a speck of dust in their eye, but I don't have a plank. That's what my pride keeps telling me. I don't have flaws. And we will use, well, I'm not perfect. Well, yeah, you think you are. That's usually the, when you, we say that, we're trying to say, well, I, I'm better than that person. Isn't that what we're really saying? I may not be perfect, but I'm better than you. We usually don't finish it that way. It's a little bit strong, but that's what we're really saying, isn't it? Because we don't see the plank. We're blinded by this, the reality of what's around us. And pride does that. Pride doesn't allow us to see clearly. And that's why it's so important for you and I to live in this thing called community. To live in relationship where there are people around us who love us enough that can come every so often and they can hold a spiritual mirror up to our lives and say, look at this. You need to see this. You need to see what I see because you're blind and it's causing you problems and you don't even see it. And then when you and I look into that mirror and like, oh, I never even saw that. You and I have to be willing to accept that. There's something that happens when you and I get a picture of what we really look like. You know, we have images of what we look like and then we look in the mirror and most of us are sorely disappointed. Some of us are like really impressed and that's pride, obviously. But when we look and you see things like, I didn't know that was there. I remember one of the most shocking, shocking moments for me when I was in middle school, I, was, uh, ride my, I would ride my bike to school every day, and I had a friend who was a couple years younger than me, and he started coming with me, and he, we would ride our bikes to school together. And one day, it was like, I think it was like the first day I let him ride with me. We were on a, a, a residential street, there was a car coming, and I was going to cross, so I waited to cross. 
Well, he didn't want to wait, so he cut in front of me to cut in front of the car, and he clipped my front wheel, and I went flying over the handlebars, and I, my face hit the, the, the pavement, and I rolled and hit my knee, and I got up, and my bike was tweaked, and I was mad, really mad. And uh, so I, I was about, I don't know, maybe not even that far from home, less than a mile. And so I, I could walk back. My mom could give me a ride to school. So I limped my bike back home and put it in the garage and went in the house, and I could see my knee was kind of skinned, and my, ripped, my jeans were ripped, and there was blood, and so I thought, oh, I can fix that up. And I knew my face hurt, but it didn't hurt that bad. And so I walked in, and my mom, just the look on her face, I could tell something wasn't right. She said, are you okay? I said, yeah. I said, my idiot friend Joe's cut me off, and, you know, and it's his fault, and I just need to get, can you give me a ride to school? And she's all, you're hurt. I said, well, yeah, I know. My knee's skin and my face hurts a little bit. She goes, no, you're hurt. I said, what do you mean I'm hurt? She goes, she grabs me and she actually walks me into the bathroom and she puts me in front of the mirror. I didn't realize that this whole side of my face was just shredded and there was blood coming down. I didn't even, I didn't even really feel it. But you know what's it's amazing? I'll tell you, I was in ninth grade and when I looked in the mirror, I cried like a baby because suddenly what I saw actually hurt. I started to feel the pain and I started to realize, oh, I guess I am injured. I guess I am hurt. But unless my mom pulled me in front of the mirror, I would have never seen what I needed to see. And some of us live our lives that way. And in pride, we're really, we're like in denial. I, I'm fine. I don't have any problems. Do you trust somebody in your life enough to bring you in front, of, in front of a spiritual mirror and say, hey, take a look. Take a look and see what everybody else is seeing that you need to come to grips with. You need to deal with the brokenness in your own life. Which leads to the second one, which I think is even more devastating than the first one. Jesus goes on in verses 4 and 5. The second cause of criticism is hypocrisy. Because Jesus goes on, he says, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? And then he says this, first part of verse 5, you hypocrite. What's a hypocrite? It's a Greek actor who put on a mask and did an amazing job at displaying something on stage that wasn't necessarily true of who they were in real life. Convincing people of something that wasn't real. That's what a hypocrite was really good at doing. And so as Jesus is saying, listen, you are a hypocrite, which means you know inside what's right and what's true and what your problems are, but you've chosen to take a mask and cover over them, thinking that nobody around you will see what's really going on. See, that's more dangerous than pride because you and I are knowingly trying to cover up the brokenness and the failure in our life so that we can point the finger at somebody else. To get the attention off of our brokenness, we'll wear a mask. We'll cover ourselves over. We won't be transparent. And that's why being a hypocrite is so much more dangerous than even pride is because it's a decision you and I make to intentionally try to deceive people around us. And when we get to that point, there's no transparency in our life anymore. We become professional Christians and we get really good at it where we intentionally don't put ourselves in any context where someone's going to really dig deep into our lives because that means for a moment we're going to take off the mask and we're going to have to expose the plank the issue in our life. So we, we, don't, we don't go to community groups. We don't get involved in life transformation groups. Guys, you hear about a retreat and you're thinking, there's no way I'm going on a retreat with anybody because I don't want anybody to know what's going on in my life. So we just keep pulling away and pulling away. Why? So that we can stay the way we are, completely covered and completely isolated from people around us. Jesus is telling you and I, he, if we go back, you know, in the chapter five, chapter six, how many times does Jesus talk about hypocrites? The religious leaders that were professionals, they were good at it, but there was nothing true or real in them. And you and I have to understand, that's the motivation many times that we have in being a critic is because in our brokenness, and this isn't true all the time, but it happens frequently. 
the greatest place of our brokenness becomes the greatest focus of our critique on other people. So we take a mask in our life and we cover over our brokenness, yet we are extremely judgmental towards people who have the same issues. But we could become really good at covering it. So it looks like we don't really have that issue. But we're so angry at our own brokenness that we've taken it out on other people around us. We've just covered it over. And then eventually it comes out, the very issue that you were so adamant about in somebody else's life is the very issue of your own brokenness and failure in yours. That's why Jesus warns. It's pride, it's hypocrisy that ultimately... It ultimately keeps us from really being honest. See, because the question that a hypocrite asks is not, is this right or wrong? That's never what a hypocrite asks. A hypocrite asks this question, can I get away with this? That's the question. Can I get away with the brokenness inside of me as long as I cover it in front of people? If you and I live that way, beware. There is a judge. His name is God. And he sees past our masks. And he knows what's going on in our lives. Three things I want to conclude with. This is where we shift because some of you are thinking, wait a second, isn't there parts in the Bible where it says it's okay to judge and we're supposed to cor- correct people? And, but Jesus is saying, don't judge on one side and then, then it says we can. So what, what is this, what's going on? Jesus goes on and explains, yeah, there is a context. There's an environment where you and I, as, as followers of Jesus, are given the ability to help other people in our life by bringing correction to them. But the way we go about it and our motivation is, is extremely, very important. So Jesus goes through, let me give you the qualifications for correction in other people's lives. What you and I have to, to walk through. The first one is in verse 5, and that is humility. Jesus says, first, take the plank out of your own eye. How many of us would, would love for the passage to be the other way? First, take the speck out of their eye, then address the plank in your eye. That's what we would love to do. But Jesus says, no, first, address the issue you have. Which means you and I have to humbly admit that we have an issue. Humbly admit that we're broken, that we have problems, that we're not perfect. There has to, something in us has to happen. If we're going to actually correct somebody and help them to learn from their failures and their mistakes, then you and I have to be willing to come to grips with our own. There's something that happens in you and I when we come to grips with our own brokenness that gives us the ability to understand and appreciate somebody else's brokenness. It's when we come from our our perch and our perfect little position and we look down on people that what we do is hurtful and harmful. It's never helpful to anyone. It's painful in their lives. But you and I have to come to grips. There's something about brokenness and experiencing failure and loss and going through life that way because there's something happens in us you know we talk about having a limp in that reference back to jacob and him wrestling with god and and the angel touching him and giving him a a permanent limp so as he walked he he had this mark of pain in his life of struggle of suffering that that is something that is a benefit because we learn from those kinds of experiences in life it brings a sense of humility to us when Jordan was younger, I was coaching a lot of basketball. Well, I started coaching before Jordan could play. But then as he grew up, I was coaching a number of his teams. But the year before he started uh, playing uh, basketball, actually probably two years before, I was coaching a team. And, and we started out, and I, and I saw, I knew right away that the, 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 the team that I had been given wasn't like the top grade A talent for the league. Uh, we had one kid who knew what a basketball was and could dribble it. And then we had another kid that was really big, and he was just figuring out the fact that he had a left and a right foot, not two left feet. And so that was kind of the sum total of our talent. And then you had some guys that just kind of figuring out this game. So I knew going in that, that I didn't have real high expectations. And so 
we worked really hard in practice, and uh, the first four games of the season, we lost all of them. And we lost all of them, like, horrifically. It wasn't like close games. I didn't know that third-grade boys could score 60 points in a game. But it can be done. You can't, you can't lose by 40. It's amazing when you're third-grade boys. And so the first half of the season, it was tough. And I remember... Each week, I'm like, you know, trying to lift the guys up and say, hey, you know, we're learning from this. And like third grade boys are like, yeah, I'm getting embarrassed. I'm not learning anything. And so, but there was something in them that, that made them a little bit more hungry at practice to listen to what I had to say. And so we got to the fifth game and that's when we started the rotation again to play all the teams again. So everybody had a shot at us once and they killed us and then we came back and we won. We won game number five. And you would have thought we like won the championship. And they're like, we won the game. And then we ended up winning three more games in a row, one four. So we were four and four, and then we lost a game, and then we, won it. we ended up splitting like five and five at the end of the season. And by the time we got to the end of the season, you would have thought these guys, we won the championship because they were so excited because they knew where we came from, and they knew where we ended up, and they liked where we ended up because there was something in them they learned early on. I think it was two seasons later, had the exact opposite problem. The team that I was coaching had two really talented players, and a few other players, and we started 4-0. and And that was the worst thing that could have happened to us. Because after the first game, they felt pretty good. After the second game, they felt a little cocky. After the third game, Jordan started telling me that there was a lot of talk at school. A lot of trash talking by, I think there's like fifth, fourth grade boys at this time. Like, a lot of trash talking about how good they were. They won the fourth game, and it's like, no one can touch us. Then what did we end up doing? We ended up losing, I think, just about every game the rest of the season. Because every team that got another shot at us, they knew what our weaknesses were. And one of them was pride. And we lost horrifically. And that was a disappointing season. Why? Because those guys never learned anything because they had success early and didn't walk with that sense of, oh, you know what? I learned from my failure. That's what humility does. And when you and I are willing to come to grips with our own brokenness, you know what it does in us? It gives us the ability to appreciate somebody else's failure. And it gives us what leads to the second thing. It gives us a sense of compassion for people. So going on, Jesus says in the next part of verse 5, he says, And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You will see clearly. You will be able to see after, after you've taken the plank out of your eye. Only after will you be able to see how you can remove. Because you know the plank that just came out of your own eye. And you know how hard and painful that was. So now you can think through, how do I remove the speck from my brother's eye? How do I help him? How do I help her so that she, they can learn and they can grow from this? Because the question that you and I have to have when it comes to correction is asking this, is this going to lead to something redemptive in their life? That's a question we have to ask. Because if it's not, then our motivation is wrong. Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to justify ourselves, we're trying to build ourselves up, we're trying to push them down while we lift ourselves up. But if we're asking the question, is this going to help them for God to redeem something broken in their life, if I help point out this area of failure in their life, then you and I know that we're on the right track, that we actually care. See, when you and I do things with compassion, we do them differently. If we really don't care, we don't care who gets hurt or the debris field that we leave behind. But if we care about the people that we're bringing correction to, then we really do, we do it in the right way. You ever had to remove a splinter from your child's finger or foot or whatever it is? When I, went, when I was younger, we went camping at Carpinteria, and we were there for a few days. I think the first day, I got this really terrible splinter in the bottom of my heel. And my mom didn't have any tweezers or anything at the time, and so she's like, you're just going to have to suck it up for the next couple of days until we get home, and I can deal with it properly. I'm like, okay. 
So we did it. It was painful, but I, I was thinking, okay, what's going to hurt more? Staying in here at Carpentry and walking on it and playing in the water or going home and watching my mom try to pull it out of my foot? I wanted to extend vacation a little bit longer. But when we got home, I remember my mom, my mom cared deeply about how she was going to remove the splinter. So she didn't want it to hurt. She wanted to distract me. So she sits me down and she pulls out the tweezers and the needle and the, the, the alcohol. I'm like, this is not good. This looks like minor surgery. And then my dad sits down next to me and she goes, now listen, this is how we're going to do it, honey. She goes, dad's going to read you a story and I'm going to take the splinter out of your foot. I'm thinking, reading a story is not going to help me, mom. Okay. I'm still going to feel the pain. And then my three sisters, which means I grew up with four moms. They're all hovered around (laughs) trying to help too. It's like this whole family ordeal. How are we going to get the splinter out of his foot? And so I remember my mom really gently trying to, you know, pull the skin back and trying to get the splinter out. My dad reading the story like it's really exciting, and I'm like writhing in pain, and finally they got it out. They went through all that trouble. Why? Because they cared enough about me that they didn't want to inflict more pain on me in the process of removing something that was causing greater pain. How much thought and how much care and compassion do we give to when people are struggling in life bringing correction? Do we think, how is this going to come across to them? How are they going to receive this? How is this going to be redemptive in their life to help them follow Jesus more or receive the health and the wholeness that God wants them to have in their life? Which leads to the final thing. And that is, verse 6, the final qualification for correction is wisdom. Verse 6, very interesting verse. Jesus says, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. I remember reading this this passage when I was really young, and I had no idea what Jesus was talking about. The first five verses made kind of some sense to me. Then I read verse 6, and I'm like, what in the world? He's talking about dogs and pigs? I didn't understand it. Until I started to live a little more life, and I started to study a little more scripture and understand what Jesus was talking about. He's using the analogy of dogs, wild dogs, and filthy pigs, that if you feed a wild dog, even though you're helping them, they may not appreciate what you're doing for them, even the food you're providing for them, and they may turn and they may go after you. They may bite the hand that feeds them. And when you give something valuable to a pig who will eat anything... They won't even know the value of what you're giving them. So what he's saying, what Jesus is saying about correction is you have to know who you're correcting and if they're willing to receive what you're about to say. Other words, what you're doing is you're setting yourself up to take something valuable and throw it away or you're setting yourself up to have a fight that you don't need to have. And this is the difficult thing about correction because we go to one of two extremes. We love to correct people. We love to be in the place of authority and say, you know, let me help you. Let me pull the speck at it. Or we run the other way. I don't want to tell anybody they have problems in their life. I don't want that kind of conflict. So we say nothing. We either say too much or we don't say enough. And what Jesus is saying is you and I have to have the wisdom by the Holy Spirit to know, can this person receive what I'm about to say to them? It took me a long time in pastoral ministry to figure this one out. For the first number of years being a senior pastor, I remember I liked being an associate pastor because the senior pastor had to take all the heat. And I thought it would be easier when I became a senior pastor, but it wasn't. And so when I went out there, and you have people sitting in your office, you know, they're, they're pouring out their life to you, they're telling you their struggles, and you're thinking, well, I can help them, I can give them a good advice on this. And then you turn around, you say something to you, and then they get angry at you. You're like, wait, I'm trying to help you. 
I can still see people literally getting up out of my office, sl- like flinging the door out, yelling and screaming as they leave my office. I'm thinking, uh, wait a second, did I miss something here? I was, you came to me and asked for help, and I tried to help you, and now you're mad at me? I had a lot of people like that. I had a lot of nasty letters that came to me. I had a lot of things that I didn't, I didn't handle correction well because I didn't take the time to step back and say, okay, Lord, I can see the issue in this person's life, but are they at a place where they can receive this? Can they really receive what they need? Can they handle the truth right now? Because if the truth is not done in love and compassion, it simply becomes a weapon that does more damage than good. So I remember taking a step back and thinking through, okay, so now I'm a little bit more sensitive to the Holy Spirit. When I, do I still see things that maybe need... I see the specks in people's eyes? Sure I do. But I also think about God. Is this person at the place where they can handle it? Can they value what's going to be said? And if not, I'm going to wait for the right opportunity for you to open that door. Let me just, as a way, as a close, let me give you some questions that I process through, thinking through how do I help somebody? How do I correct somebody? That I try, I try to process through. And the first question is this. When I'm going to share something with somebody that comes, could come across difficult or corrective in their life is, is this about my pride or is this about the person? It's, that's a hard one. Is this about me and me feeling good about myself? Is me being right and them being wrong? Because if that's my motivation, then it's going to come across wrong. It's going to be hurtful to them. But if it, if it really is about how to help them, then it'll come across the right way, which leads to the second thing. Is this just about getting it done or is it about doing it right? No, there's not too many of us that wake up in the morning and think, man, I just long to correct people today. We just, most of us don't do that. We shy away from it. But sometimes when we are forced into that situation where we need to help bring correction to somebody, we don't want to do it, so we just get it done. We don't think about how we're doing it, and it becomes across difficult and painful because we don't think about the way that we're doing it. Or maybe the third question, is this going to lead towards what is redemptive in their life? What is the outcome? If I share this information with them right now in their life, what is going to be their next step? What's going to happen? Are they going to receive this? Are they going to take this in? Are they going to make changes in their life? Or are they going to get angry? Are they going to run? Are they going to close down even more? Because that's the question. And the final question I ask is, can I leave room for the Holy Spirit to work in their life? This one's hard. That means there may be times where you want to bring correction to somebody. But maybe God's saying, you need to just wait for a moment. You need to give room for me to work in their life. And as a pastor, that's hard for me because sometimes it's like, oh, that's your role. You're supposed to bring correction to people. You're supposed to let them know that there's things in their life that they need to work on. But sometimes, even as a pastor, even anybody, a follower of Jesus, you and I can jump the gun on the Holy Spirit. And we can come across and say something too soon to somebody, and then they run. Because I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen so many times where early on where I would say something... And then it would not turn out the way I wanted it to. They wouldn't respond well. They wouldn't receive it. They would close up. Their pride would go up and they wouldn't see it. And then sure enough, down the line, there was something God was going to orchestrate in their life that was going to open their eyes and they were going to see what they couldn't see before. There are other times when I know that God has said, listen, yeah, there's an issue in life, but you need to be patient. Wait, wait, wait. And sure enough, something would happen in that person's life that correction would come and they could see it. But if I would open my mouth, they wouldn't have been able to receive it. It's having that wisdom and listening. Because again, if this is about the other person, it's not about us, then we should step back and say, God, I want my motives to be right. I want your purpose, your redemptive work in their life to be worked on this. So give me how I should say this, when I should say this, and what I should say. 
because then we know this is about them and what God wants to do to them, not about our pride, not about what we want to do. This is hard stuff. This is difficult. But as I said at the beginning, and I'll close with this, that Jesus knew what he was doing 2,000 years ago. He knows what he's doing today. When he stood on a hillside and he was speaking to people 2,000 years ago, he wasn't just talking to a handful of people gathered. He knew who he was talking to. He knew he was talking to his church 2,000 years in the future that would still need to hear about passing judgment and critiquing each other. He knew that would still be a challenge for us. And that's why we are going through the Sermon on the Mount. That's why we're listening to Jesus, because he knows the things that we deal with. And this is a big one. And I'm thankful to God that it's becoming less of a big one at New Hope. And we're striving for it to continue that way. And this is how I'd like to close. If you know that in your life there's something that either you've passed judgment or maybe you've, you've prematurely brought correction to somebody and you've caused a rift, intentional, unintentional, We've talked about this, and Jesus talked about it many times. If there is an offense between you and somebody else because of their criticism of you or your criticism of them, you need to go to them. You need to humble yourself. You need to ask for forgiveness. You need to bring back unity so that God can do his work both in you and in them. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you again for your wisdom that stands the test of time. That as we come to this passage today... We know that you're speaking to us. You're speaking about our lives and speaking about the way that we handle this concept of judgment. So Lord, help us. Help us to be wise. Help us to have wisdom. Help us to walk in humility and compassion towards each other. Help us to see the bigger picture of what you are redemptively doing in the lives of people around us so that we might be a part of what you're doing and not a roadblock or a limitation to people in their lives. Lord, thank you for your love and your compassion towards us. Help us to live that out in our lives towards others. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.